0: Hey, everybody. Welcome to Shitty Book Reports, where the reports are shitty, but the books are not. I'm Trevor. This is
1: Mark. How you feeling, Mark? Uh, I feel like I'm never going to get rid of this farmer's tan I got from getting burned a couple of years ago. How are you doing?
0: Yeah, I have that too. I got the worst, the worst sunburn of my life I got last year, and it was actually when I was like making a sketch like a video like i was in a video and i was wearing a like a tank like a wife beater tank top which i obviously never wear (laughs) and still like sometimes it comes out where it's like that sunburn is still there
1: yeah it's deep you gotta weird do like some real specific you gotta like tape off yourself like you're painting a room or something (laughs) like yeah get get the lines right weird
0: uh i feel like i'm sitting on a pile of gold but it's not enough not enough. No, it's never enough. I got smog the dragon vibes. Yeah,
1: <laughs> greedy yeah.
0: vibes. Greedy vibes. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um. So yeah, I mean, this week, usually every week, me and Mark try to figure out what's going to happen with the intro, and you have something, you have a new segment to launch.
1: Yeah, we'll see if it it launches or sizzles or falls flat yeah. on his face, but um going through some old stuff uh and i found i found a book that i hadn't seen in a very long time uh mm-hmm. so it's from 1994 and uh-huh. so what what do you think of 1994 i think of dumb and dumber and um uh D- dumb and dumber and forrest gump they came out like at the same time in 94.
0: yeah and Dumber like, weekend Yeah, there was a, yeah, that's like a legendary film story that came out on the same weekend, and everyone was more interested in Dumb and Dumber. Yeah. Um, What I think, 1994 makes me think of Kurt Cobain, the turning point of like the 90s are over. Kurt Cobain has died. 1994, like grunge, rock, like an era, an era of rock and roll is Mm -hmm. dead. along with Kurt Cobain. That's what makes me think of 1994. Also, just being five years old. I don't know if I remember anything from being (laughs) five, but I definitely was, 1994. Yeah. I was probably running around telling
1: people I'm five. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly, like kids do. Mm -hmm. Uh, Another product from this era, though, uh, is a book that you could have bought back then where you can laugh along with America's number one cat, uh, who's obviously Garfield. Mm. And so I found I found this found this uh, book called the Garfield's Big Fat Hairy Joke Book. Nice. I think I've seen that in a few
0: bathroom baskets. Yeah. Garfield had a, he had a lot of books back in the day. Mm-hmm. There's so much like when you think about it, you know, like who's that guy who invented Charlie Brown and peanuts like Charles Shul- Schultz. Schultz or whatever. You hear about the creator's. Of Peanuts, you hear like people like talk a lot about the guy who created, you love Um the kid with the tiger, what's him? Yeah, Calvin and Hobbes. Calvin and Hobbes. But you don't really hear much about like the creator of Garfield. Jim Davis? Jim Davis. I, I don't really like, I feel like, you know, his character comes before, like people often talk about Peanuts, like Peanuts and Charles Schulz, but I don't really know anything Jim Davis.
1: Yeah. The thing is though, he did, cause it's interesting. Uh, you talk about Calvin Hobbs, like Bill Watterson, that guy, mm-hmm. he just stopped making them when it was popular. He just like, he stopped and he never gave out the licensing, mm-hmm. like the Calvin kid, like peeing on stuff, like the right. decal you see that was not approved by him. <laughs> like, of course, that's like the only product that exists for like Calvin and Hobbes stuff. I don't even think you can get like a Hobbs doll or whatever. really That's, you know it would have to be like on the black market or something. It's not licensed. But Jim hmm. Davis, Jim Davis on the sold, other hand. sold fucking <laughs> Jim Davis sold every you, there's Garfield everything. There's TV show movies, movies. keychains. Yeah, that uh uh suction cup thing that you put in the in your car window. That yeah. was a big deal.
0: I mean, maybe Jim Davis invites Bill Watterson onto his yacht
1: occasionally. Yeah, just to just to rub it in. <laughs> oh, so, yeah. So so I got the big big fat hairy joke book here. I I flipped through it and the jokes are horrible. They're they're awful. But mm-hmm. I wanted to see if you could either figure out because a lot of them are extremely obvious too. See if I'm going to give you the setup and see if you can either guess the punchline or give me a punchline that's cheesier than the actual answer.
0: Okay. So uh, it, the, really the point of the game is I'm trying to out cheese Garfield. Maybe I'm trying, I doubt Jim Davis even wrote this book.
1: No, no. See, that's what I meant. Yeah. He just, he just had ghostwriters making of course, joke books. I guess. Everything. Yeah. <laughs> it's and some of them are from Garfield's like point of view and the others are just things that maybe he would have said if you gave him some topic to talk about Mm -hmm. lasagna. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So let's, let's see if it works. And if it does, we have, uh, there's hundreds of them in here. So, uh, so for example, here you go, Uh, I'll just give you the punchline for this one. Uh, Did you hear about the cow who couldn't give milk? she was an utter failure.
0: Uh, So, Do you
1: think you would have guessed that or would you have had something?
0: Cows can, I mean, the
1: obvious thing is something about udders or something. Yeah, there's some obvious puns and there's some puns in here that I'll point out. I don't know what the pun's supposed to be. (laughs) (laughs) All right, so let's try it. why Why did the farmer take a baseball bat out to the barn? Uh,
0: why did the farmer take a baseball bat
1: to the barn?
0: Out to the barn? Is that yeah. what they said? Yep. I might be trying to analyze it too much. <laughs> um, as cheesy as you can get. So, I don't know. So he could... So he, uh, Barnes, so he could beat the weeds. So he could like, you're close. You're, you're so close he, to the real answer. Very so he close. could swing, you know, for the fences, fences,
1: weeds, beat, bat, swing. I don't know. <laughs> you're, you're, he said it was time to hit the hay. Oh yeah. time to hit the hay. Okay, so yeah. Yeah, I got it. Worse. So it could have been anything that you, you that you hit stuff with, could have right. been a hammer. You know, that was easy. Um, what is a what does a farmer use to count his cows? Does a farmer use to count his cows?
0: Hmm. Something about sheep jumping over a fence. I think my mind is like not uh, cheesy. Cows, cows. Cows. Um, count the cows. Count the cows. A something moo, (laughs) um,
1: a moo, a mooometer, or like a moo. Like I'm going to give um, you a hint. Okay. Most of them are you take you take the noun from the joke, and the the pun extends directly from that. (laughs) The noun from the joke. So cows.
0: Um, I don't know. I think he uses a muometer.
1: <laughs> he, uses, he uses a, a calculator.
0: Uh,
1: ah, yeah. calculator. You gotta, you gotta go directly like. But I was getting there. <laughs> it doesn't stray far from the word in the beginning. Okay. Uh, this one's kind of hard though, but it's open ended, so you might have something. Who is Garfield's favorite? It's the first Garfield one too. Who is Garfield's favorite historical figure?
0: Ooh, so um,
1: Garfield and what he loves. Garfield
0: loves lasagna. He hates Mondays. But uh, it's, but it's also a pun. <laughs> yeah, a lasagna pun about what? Who is it? its favorite world leader? Historical figure. Historical figure. Ooh, what is lasagna closest to? us like like Louis the Fourteenth or Lincoln or. Les,
1: le, le, I don't know who. <laughs> well, uh, Marco Polo might be a good one for uh, spaghetti and whatever, but or pasta or stuff, but uh, it was na- Napoleon. Napoleon.
0: Oh, He loves naps. Oh, God. I should have gone one deeper. Yeah. He loves lasagna Mondays and naps. He hates
1: Mondays. Yeah. Well, uh, hate one him. of his five things about him. Uh, This is the one I don't know what the pun is. What happened when the beach met the shore or when the beach met the ocean? When the beach met
0: the ocean. Well, you said shore. So something (laughs) happened.
1: (laughs) So it was a shore thing or something. I mean, that's better, I guess, than what this (laughs) is. It said the ocean made him shore. And I don't know if they're saying sure or sore. And I also don't know what that would imply. Well, yeah, it made him short. they just, they just kind of took the word short. And said, when, yeah, when the beach met the ocean, is it, is it sore? Cause like the waves are hitting it or something.
0: I wonder if there's ever been, I'm sure there has been like a joke book like this. Like, Okay. So in the film industry, sometimes things, and and also like in every industry, really, like in IT and stuff, people will be like farmed, like certain like tasks out to like India or like Southeast Asia or like all these different places. I wonder if there's ever been like ghost written joke books where it's just like, we send it to, you know, whatever, Burma, and then it comes back.
1: (laughs) Yeah. or, Or now, I mean,
0: AI. Yeah, no, yeah, AI, definitely. An AI could definitely write a
1: book like this. This, like this match, joke, like yeah. Book. Like, you take <laughs> given noun, you find out what its opposite is or whatever. <laughs> I think you're on to something. Or words that sound similar. We can uh, forget about the podcast. Just let's just start an AI pocket industry that yeah. writes shitty joke books. Uh, what type of exercises do penguins do?
0: Ooh, penguins... They like waddle back and forth, jumping jacks. What kind of like pun can I make from like jumping jacks or like push-ups or somersaults or jogging shit? Uh. (laughs) This game's harder.
1: Than I thought it would be. It is
0: harder than I thought. Well, we debated going back and forth if I should do them on the spot or if I should have them beforehand to make guesses. Maybe I should have them
1: beforehand. Yeah, to see how cheesy something. How you come how up
0: with. far I can pull it? Uh, no, I don't know. What's what the how, penguin? Ice isometrics. Wow, isometrics doesn't even have to do with exercise, does it?
1: Yeah, yeah. No, an <laughs> isometric is uh like a a move where you're not moving, like you're. Uh, pushing against something immovable.
0: Oh, well, so you can do it. Do I isometrics. don't even know what that is. Yeah.
1: <laughs> That's more for me. Yeah. Uh, I'm taking the, uh, I'm taking the fifth on that. Uh, what Russian city has the most mice?
0: Hmm. Well, there's only like really two Russian cities that are like common knowledge to everyone, St. Petersburg and Moscow. Mice cow, Moscow. <laughs> they just like say it. Mice. They just like make it into a
1: word. Yes, exactly. Mouse, mouse cow. Oh my god, <laughs> you that's nailed so it. Dumb. <laughs> uh, why did just? There's there's a whole section that's just about mice, and all of them are mouse. Like they're all the same joke. I think it would be
0: really like the funny thing about this is like imagine just saying that like in an actual social context, like telling that joke like. Mouse cow, <laughs>
1: it would be like, leave leave <laughs> the party.
0: <laughs>
1: leave uh, the- why did Garfield ask Odie to help him chase the mice? Because mice. Oh. <laughs> it's another mouse pun, but it's on a, a common, it's on a, a, a phrase. You know, he's asking him to join him. So now it's two people instead of one. Um, oh um but
0: it's also two, two mouse two, two, <laughs> two mice two mouse are better than one two not, not, not specifically two, it could be more <laughs> <laughs> one mouse is better than one.
1: <laughs> what is it? What is it yeah. say? Uh because mousery loves company. What the hell? See, there you go. Uh, what did Garfield do when he found Odie chewing the dictionary? Is this another mouse one or it's different? No, no. Chewing twice. the dictionary? I skipped to that next
0: chapter. What did he do when he found Odie chewing the dictionary?
1: Um, He chewed him out. <laughs> <laughs> See, this, this, this game is, I think, I think. We figured out that we need some preparation. Some preparation. Well, it is a shitty book report after yes, all. You're not really supposed to prepare. He took the words right out of his mouth. Ooh, he took the word. Oh, okay. That no one's thought, like sort of clever for the, yeah, the standard of this book.
0: It's I don't have good. a mind for these like common sayings. Like yeah. forget all these common sayings.
1: Well, you got to put yourself in the, 19, the 1990s first and then... Garfield mind, like mindset. Yeah. What have you done, Jim Davis? You've put your name. Does it say his name on the book or does it say like Garfield? Oh, yeah. Oh, I should have pointed this out when you said it. It says created by Jim Davis. So he's just taking credit for Garfield. But then it says written by Jim craft and Mark AC. Ooh, Jim and Mark, you guys, where are they now? That's my question. I don't know. <laughs> it's about uh, Ballantine books.
0: All right, one more. One la- Ballantine.
1: Yeah. It's not like a beer. That's a fictional beer, beer from Frasier. <laughs> um I think that's a, a real beer, right? I don't know. Yeah, it might be. Uh, what is uh no, I got two more. What is Garfield's favorite type of Halloween candy?
0: Hmm. Everyone's least favorite Halloween candy is candy corn. Um his favorite type of Halloween candy
1: I like candy corn.
0: I like candy it's corn too. If everyone like, it's like everyone shits on it. Um, Garfield's favorite type of Halloween candy.
1: This one's just not even a pun. It's like a, <laughs> it's like a uh, Austin Powers like thing. I think that'll make sense when I say it. Was Austin Powers out in 1994? No, but just the, on that level of like. I don't know. Right. <laughs> a, a noun. Uh, he likes, his favorite candy is lots of candy. L-O-T-S-A, lots of candy. Wow. <laughs> how am I supposed to get that? I don't know. I, well, I was, <laughs> it's not so much. <laughs> you got to come up with something cheesier than that. All right, last one. How did, how did Garfield swallow an entire room?
0: Hmm. How did Garfield swallow an entire room? He, oh my god, <laughs> my mind is just so blank on these like common sayings. I know it's probably some sort of common. No, thing.
1: this isn't even a saying. It's just a, a a an item or a. It's a different. It has the word "room" in it.
0: <laughs> oh, okay. Um,
1: it just yeah. He,
0: he, 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 how how did he swallow an entire room? I
1: don't know. Tell me. It's fucking brilliant. It's uh, it's a mushroom. (laughs) Mushroom.
0: Oh, a room. So he, he swallowed an apostrophe room. Yeah. A room. Yep. A mushroom. (laughs) Tricked you. Tricked you. He tricked me. C says here, diagonally.
1: Yeah. So... And the cover of this book, Garfield's wearing, like, the Groucho Marx, like, glasses with the nose and...
0: Yep, the nose, uh, yep.
1: I don't... Yeah. And the mustache. So you know that he's, like, not a serious guy.
0: Right.
1: He's never been serious. Yeah.
0: (laughs) Although, aren't there some, like, shady things? Like, people, like, will sometimes post, like, online, like, Garfield's where it's, like, he's, like, a complete bastard to Odie, like... Just like beyond the pale, horrible. <laughs> oh, yeah. Anything you could think of, probably out there. Isn't it all? There's like also some mysterious stuff going on with his owner.
1: With Arbuckle? Yeah. Yeah.
0: He's like, is his name Arbuckle? John? John, Arbuckle.
1: John Arbuckle. Yeah.
0: Yeah. There's like something really sad about him that people have
1: like discovered
0: over time or something.
1: Yeah. Well, there's the, there's the, uh, someone went and made Garfield minus Garfield or whatever. Um, that's its own uh, thing where it's like, they remove Garfield from all the comic strips and it just shows John being like, sad. Really yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Cause he'll just okay. be staring at nothing and then he won't do anything for three frames and then he'll just like sigh or say like, I hate, I hate this. Like, yeah. <laughs> oh my God. That's depressing. <laughs> it's pretty good. It's pretty good. Pretty um, but yeah, so I think now you need to find an awful joke book cause I don't want to like mail this to you to do right like my part mail it back and (laughs) forth to each other. Um, so if you could find something on this level, that could be our contribution to the USPS during these hard times. Yeah. (laughs) Maybe like, like the ALF, the ALF joke book, like a vintage one. Yeah. See if I can find something, something like that. Yeah.
0: Um, so actually mysterious books, you know, finding old books or finding mysterious books on your bookshelf does segue nicely into, uh, my presentation for episode 56, even number. So, I go first. you ready? Yeah. Okay. So, the very first, the way that I just want to start this out is not with a question, not with anything. More just like, I I read a book this week. I read an entire book. It was, um, let me check my page count here. It's something like 250. So it was readable enough. Yeah, it was 252, 252. Um, and this book is like a book that's just on my bookshelf. And you, you, you can sympathize with this. You probably have a stack of books where you're like, those are the potential like next episodes, right? Yeah. Like or someday just like anyone else for us, it's episodes for most readers out there. It's going to be, these are the books that are on the docket, you know, coming up. Um, and I, this was, this book was not in my book of potential like up next. It's basically just in the back of one of my shelves. And then when I picked it up for this week, I was like, I bet you I can make it through this book. But also I think it's a good intro of like, I have no idea why I have this book or like, because everything like when you buy books, you know, you either follow an intuition at the bookstore. But a lot of the things that I buy is like connections through other things. You know, like we read David Foster Wallace. So then that led us to Pynchon. We read like this person. So it led us to that. And it kind of like keeps going.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Like if stuff you hear about.
0: Yeah, so I have no idea where the momentum came on this book. And I'm actually wondering if it's something that you had like brought to me or I had heard on our own podcast and then bought on a whim and don't remember it like at all. Does the name John Barth mean anything to you?
1: Uh, yeah, this happened again, dude.
0: <laughs> Wait, what do you mean? You Are you talking about John Barth? Yeah. <laughs> no, you're not. Yeah. But I don't even know who he is. Do you know who he is?
1: I I sent you this book.
0: Oh, you sent
1: me this? <laughs> yeah, I know but exactly what ago? you're talking about. But years ago or something? Yeah, a quite like a Yeah, probably 6 years ago if I'm if I'm estimating. <laughs>
0: Okay, so that's I just got cool.
1: this book from you, but I have no idea.
0: This is why. I was like, I literally wrote in my, because I make a little worksheet for every episode. And I said, my main question is, how do I know about this person? And does Mark know him? Why is he in my bookshelf? <laughs>
1: <laughs> you you have in your hands, um, The Floating Opera. And it's a double the end of The, end, the end, end of the Road or something. The End like of that. the
0: Road, yes. Yeah. So, yeah, that's what's in my hands right now. You can hear nice. it yourself.
1: Listeners, that's great. I've like I wanted you to read that really bad. <laughs> oh, really? That's okay. Awesome. Yeah. Well, so, that's I, mean, why I have it. The floating opera, much more so than the end of the road.
0: Okay, yeah. so that's a good thing too because I didn't read the end of the road. I read the good. floating opera because good. it's technically the first of you know two novels that are single bound in this book. Yeah. Um. So you obviously have read this. Yes. And are you talking about the floating opera this time? No. Okay, but you're talking about John Barth.
1: Yep. (laughs) Okay, fine. Well, I'll go forward with my book report and we'll see if they cross over. This is the second time. The second time. That's pretty amazing for 52 out of 56 or whatever. Yeah, 2 out of 56. Well, I guess it also just goes to
0: that, you know, we started this podcast because we've been on a a similar reading journey for, for almost a decade. So, I guess our wires are bound to get crossed. Okay, so the reason I have this book is because Mark sent it to me. (laughs) (laughs) and i don't even remember that happening okay so john Barth, the floating opera published in 1956 but as per my research and maybe you knew this too um it was like published in 1956 but heavily revised in 1967 did you know that i didn't know that so which version did i read No, you read the good one. You read the one where it's like basically like this is like this book that's like double bound with his second novel. This is a first novel, by the way, and uh, or like first fully published novel. And then the second one, The End of the Road, is like seen as like a companion like book to it. That's why they bind it into one now. Um, and they're both short enough to be like one normal 300 page book or something. Yeah. So. What happened with this book is he comes out with The Floating Opera in 1956 and then basically it's like that classic story of like, you're a new author kid and I'm from, you know, the New York Review of Books or I'm from this fancy publishing agency and I think this, that and the other thing about your book and they thought it like the original was like too cynical. So then the floating opera, he like revises it in 1967. I'd love to read the 56 version because apparently what like, so basically what happened and I'll get more into the plot of this book. Wait, so way.
1: we read, we've read the less cynical version. No, the more cynical. Okay. That's what I thought. Cause I'm like, yeah. this book is incredibly cynical. <laughs> <laughs> no, we read the more.
0: I think what they did was they changed the ending. Um, okay. And fair warning to our listeners that I'm just going to talk about full plot like throughout, especially since you've already read it. I'll just, you know, talk about the ending and everything. But so The Floating Opera by John Barth. This book is like one of those books where it's like seems normal But I think the biggest thing for me that was like kind of an attractor, I wasn't like super into it, but I did, you know, read it in one week, which is good. But the thing that was interesting is that I just think he has like a flair for the unexpected. Mm -hmm. Because basically this book starts out with this guy, Todd Andrews. He's in Maryland, which is apparently where John Barth is from. And there's some autobiographical details in there. Like he went to Johns Hopkins University, blah, blah, blah. Same as this lawyer guy, Todd Andrews. And as you like kind of settle in with this guy, Todd Andrews, it's almost got like that, that, you know, catcher in the rye vibes where I could see a lot of people reading this book and being like, why am I supposed to care about such a bad person? You know, like (laughs) people who are just lame, like they can't see beyond the surface. And it's like, you don't have to love the main character. Like this guy's an asshole. No, he's awful. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, he's awful. So there's this guy, Todd Andrews, he's a lawyer. He doesn't really have to worry about money. And you're kind of like learning about his everyday life. It happens in and around like 1937. The It's like sort of like from, it's like his story of, it's also one of those books that you know that I like get driven crazy by like, listen here, reader. You know, mm-hmm. like, I'm writing you, I'm writing you this book and it breaks the fourth wall. It doesn't break the fourth wall in a metafictional way, but it basically starts out with this guy being like, this is the first book I'm writing. And this is what I think about writing. And this is what I think about that, this, that, and the other thing. Um, so as you get settled in with Todd Andrews, he's this lawyer, he doesn't care about money. And then eventually it takes the first turn, which like this book is all just about taking like crazy ass turns where it's eventually like, Yeah. And that's when like my best friend who I've been telling you about, Harrison Mack, is like this guy who's his best friend who's like the heir to some pickle fortune or whatever. His dad is like some guy who owns a pickle business. (laughs) And he's like, yeah. And then my best friend's wife, yeah, she was totally like waking up in my bed because I sleep with my best friend's wife like on the regular. So then that's like the first turn. Do you remember that? Yes. Where you're like, okay, what? And then he eventually starts talking about how his best friend and his beautiful wife, Jane basically come to him one day when they're like, he's always like a third wheel to like their normal, like living. I think a lot of people can relate with that. Sometimes there's just like some couple that you hang out with yeah, and he's like single. And then one day it's basically Jane just comes to him and she's like, Hey, me and Harrison have talked it over. Me and your best friend have talked it over. And we think that I'm just going to like start, sleeping with you. And he's like, that's cool. <laughs> you know? <laughs> and he like kind of blithely a lot of people I've read like like reviews here and there, some Wikipedia stuff on this. And it's like considered a nihilist novel, you know, like nihilism, like the world doesn't mean anything. Yeah. Nothing has intrinsic value. Which the character himself kind of goes into some, you know, ethical kind of wonderings about stuff like that. So it's like, at first he sees his wife, his best friend's wife, then you learn a little bit about that. And he analyzes it from like, just like a few different angles. Then it keeps going. It's all within the context of one day, right? He also sets up in the beginning that this is the day
1: that he's going to commit suicide. Do you also exactly. remember that? Yeah, that was, that was what I remember the most out of it. Because just the, the way that that was written, I thought was unique.
0: Yeah, it's very cynical. It's very cold. And basically yeah. he just starts out by being like, here's me. I, you know, I sleep with my best friend's wife. Like this is what I do. These, this is our lives, whatever. And then eventually he's like, yeah. And I'm also like, I've decided that today is the day where I'm going to die. So, you know, for whatever, you know, reasons that I won't reveal. And then he like, keeps like telling the story and being like, well, I'm going to do this this way today because it's my last day on earth. And like, this is what I'm doing and blah, blah, blah. And then you keep learning things going forward. Then like the next turn that it takes, is that you know you eventually learn that his dad also committed suicide so that's like another like sh- crazy sharp like left turn or right turn or whatever you want to say out of left field where it's like yeah and then oh by the way like yeah i came home one day when i was staying with my dad back in what i'm telling you about my life and he had just like hung himself in the basement and i discovered the body and you're like Shit, that's horrible um so maybe he's following some sort of pattern. I think basically the whole novel, it's it's kind of like a funny thing of you feel like you're established inside this like not so great person's life. Like you understand the narrative. And then as you go deeper, it's like, oh, I don't understand the psychology of this person because it gets keep getting like piled on, mm-hmm. you know? So yeah, it's like a psychological novel in that way. And it's all like these events that happen in one day. Another like crazy turn is that when, do you remember the part where like, he's in this like legal battle for his best friend's estate where he could see he's like, gonna, he basically has in his hands, like the ability to make his friend like a rich man or not. Do you remember
1: the details of how he can make him a rich man? Not exactly. But I know he was his, he was his best friend's lawyer, right?
0: Yeah. So his best friend, the guy who he sleeps with his wife, he's also his lawyer. And the best friend is like he is in a dispute because his dad towards the end of his life made like multiple wills, like one per month, like towards the end of his life, like getting crazier and crazier and like getting like Alzheimer's and stuff. But the two conflicting ones are between his actual his own mother uh, his best friend's mother and his best friend. So it's like, who's going to get daddy's millions or whatever. Oh, Okay. Yeah. And what he does is he basically like goes again, another sharp turn, the unexpected, like John Barth, like that's probably his thing or what he was going for. He starts talking about how his dad was like a hoarder towards the end of his life. And he stopped throwing out even his bodily movements. Do you remember that? So basically in the will, the mom like wins the case, like wins the suit, but then she inherits like something like 600 jars of his like, yes, I shit it and it's pissed. all coming back to me now. Yes. So that's like out of nowhere where you're like, okay, like I'm imagining it's like, I kind of saw this book almost like in black and white, you know, like a twilight zone episode where it's like a guy who's wearing a suit. He's a lawyer. He's kind of an asshole, you know, whatever. And then, and then it takes this other thing where it's like, Yeah, then the mom inherits literal jars of shit, and the way that we're gonna prove that she doesn't love her husband is that she disposes of them like in the garden.
1: And he's like, doesn't keep them, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah,
0: And he's like, now that I know that she's she's disposing of this like estate or whatever, so all that has to happen is that my friend will inherit the three million dollars, but he has to keep these jars of shit for the rest of his life. And it's like, what? Like, that's out of nowhere. Like, what the hell is that? And then eventually his like day, it's like all within this context of one day where he's like, and then I run an errand to my office and then I go take a nap. You know, typical 1930 shit where it's like, that's not how the working world works now. But, you know, (laughs) apparently he can just go like, you know, figure out one thing at work and then like, okay, now I'm going to go have a three hour break.
1: The Maryland thing.
0: Yeah, I guess so. But then there's also all these health problems with him. He has these like flashbacks. So do you remember when he killed a German soldier?
1: Yes. It's yeah. like
0: really fucked up. Like he's just going along his day. And then he tells you about this flashback where he was like, he was a soldier in World War One, And when he was in Europe, he's like, yeah, basically like him and this other German soldier like came to like a standstill, right. Where they kind of like they're, they both know that they don't want to kill each other. So they kind of just start hanging out, but then they like have an emotional breakdown where they like hug each other and laugh. And even, I think he says they even kiss each other like on the cheek or something. And like, yeah, like all this stuff happens. And then he's like, and then all of a sudden I just stood up and I shoved my bayonet into his neck. And you're like, what the fuck like that was it was like a truce and then he talks about how like the popping sound that comes from like stabbing someone in the neck has like affected him for the rest of his life and that's what he remembers like on on the daily
1: and you're like god this guy is like so fucked yeah and exactly and that i think that's what i was drawn to with this book because yeah seeing as i if I read it that long ago, I was like 22, 23 when I read mm-hmm. this. Book. <laughs> right. So you could see, I think maybe that might be one of the reasons why I liked it
0: mm-hmm. back
1: then, you know. Yeah, it
0: is very to, I would like to
1: revisit and I want to know what it how it registers to the uh a more adult mind <laughs> yeah well what's
0: funny is that i almost felt like you know i think like two episodes ago i had talked about temple of the golden pavilion by mishima yeah. and i almost felt like this was like an american mishima that's like not as good you know it's like this guy where like because that's what mishima did a lot he like assumed the mind of somebody who was sort of awful you know like especially temple of the golden pavilion that was like based on historical context like let's see what i can explore about the psychology of like this fucked up like student or whatever but and you know maybe it's that thing too of like that exoticism bias where it's like you know maybe i just take it more seriously because i find mishima interesting and exotic but mishima's writings kind of seem more land like more like directly like to the heart of things philosophical. Whereas John Barth was more like whimsical and sort of like, do I take this guy seriously? Is it supposed to be funny or whatever? The title of the book is really cool. It's called the floating opera because there's like this boat in town. um, That's, that's like moored up on the river or whatever in the town that they're in. And it's all a metaphor for like, basically like back in the day, apparently there were these like ships these like steamboats that had a stage, like in them, kind of like a cruise ship does now. And people would get on the boat and go and see a show. Yeah. Like the big, I always, I pictured the big river boat with the, big wheels you know, with the wheel on yeah. the back. Yeah. Yeah. I have picture of that wheels. too. But then of course, like the, the whole like climax of this novel is like, okay, I'm going about my day-to-day life. I see my best friend. I see his wife who I sleep with. I see some of my friends and he kind of like establishes a few characters throughout this town. And then at the end of the book, when they're on the floating opera, like seeing this show, that's been sort of, you know, foreshadowed throughout the rest of the book he goes down do you remember this he like goes down beneath the stage and he like turns on like all the gas valves yep. so that so that this so that the boat is going to explode and he's like yeah so that's what i've been thinking about this whole time like cuz as he sets up that idea of like i'm going to kill myself you're kind of wondering like is he going to kill himself like how his dad did like how is he going to kill himself basically is is kind of the dramatic tension of the book and then it's like yeah this whole time i've been planning that everyone that we know, like my friend, his wife, their daughter, who might be mine. Like, that's another thing. Like they have a baby and it's like kind of ambiguous on if it's his or not, but they, they're just going to let sleeping dogs lie about that. Mm-hmm. And then it's like all these characters who you've met throughout the book, they are all seeing the show on the floating opera. And he's like, yeah, I'm just going to go turn on the gas valves. and And then he imagines like everyone dying and he's like, yeah, like that girl who might be my daughter, she's going to be like burnt to like a crisp in a second. And you're just like, whoa, like this guy is like fucked beyond belief. And he's like telling you the whole time about how life is meaningless and nothing has intrinsic value and like all these different things and how he's like so cool, calm and collected. And that like the reason why nothing matters is X, Y, Z. And then the actual, actual end is that his plan of the floating opera doesn't come to fruition. Like he expects that the, that the ship is going to explode, but it never does. And it's sort of this anticlimactic thing where he, and I think that that's what John Barth was playing with the idea. It's like, what's that, what's that rule? Like Nabokov's gun or whatever. Like when you introduce a gun, it's a checkoff, checkoff gun gun or whatever. It's the same Murakami did the same thing in one Q eight, four, where it's like, it's, it's like this, technique of like this is supposed to happen the whole time and then it's like but by the way he doesn't kill himself and and nothing bad happens and he just keeps living his life and later that night he's like meh maybe i won't kill myself nothing matters yeah <laughs> and you're like what like you know it's it's setting up this kind of like it's playing with a literary device, like playing with your idea of like, OK, here comes the climax. Like this is what's going to happen. He's going to kill himself or this is what's going to happen. And then it's like, nah that's not what's going to happen. It's just like
1: over. <laughs> so, yeah, like I said, I read this when I was early 20s and hearing it back, it sounds like um like a postmodern, like. Fight Club, you know, yeah, yeah, like, it is I mean, sort of like it's it. just like this dark sort of thing where it's, it's like, uh, like I always kind of think of, um, something happened mm-hmm. that because right. that's another just extremely cynical book with an awful, awful main character, you know, completely mm-hmm. amoral and just, but again, it's the, the way that it's written that I'm more drawn to than, you know, I, I don't think. Mm-hmm anything of these characters or whatever, but like, well, that's
0: what I think that's where I think this like sort of movement is going for too. Cause it's, well, I mean, so I le- read a little bit about John Barth and he kind of moves beyond this. This like first novel style of his is like a realistic but nihilistic like thing. And then it comes out to be that like, he kind of enters into that postmodern world where, m- modern world where he gets referred to in like other like pension reviews and stuff yeah. like that, because he hmm. eventually, yeah, <laughs> you know, I know what, I, I'm gonna take a guess at what book you're reporting on in a second, but he goes on to start being like, yeah, I'm writing these 800 page metafictional like kind of things. So it's sort of interesting to see from this perspective, like he he's growing into that, which is interesting because pension, one of his most famous short stories before he becomes pension is, I don't know if you've ever read it. There's like a short story that he writes about a guy who cleans up bodies in, no. the, in the yeah. army. Um, but yeah, he's like in the, one of those army units where he like goes and cleans up like the battlefield of like, dozens of dead bodies or even yeah. hundreds. And it's just like fucked up and disturbing where it's interesting that they would kind of be almost like going through that same development in their early writing. And then eventually it's like, no, nah, this is the shit now, this hysterical realism. And, and uh, you know, John Barth actually wrote another thing that I found in my research for him. He wrote something called the literature of exhaustion, yep. which is considered a manifesto of postmodernism, basically like, you know, saying here's the new school and this is where we're going to be. Um, so yeah, I mean, overall, I'll wrap up here with my one star review. First of all, you're reporting on the Sotweed Factor, right?
1: No, that's the one okay. I haven't read. Okay,
0: so the Sotweed Factor is something that he eventually comes to develop, is like a book that's like an 800 page postmodern. Like that's the one or whatever. Yep. Um, you might be talking about Giles Goat Boy, Giles Goat Boy, or something like that. Um but he writes a few like postmodernist novels that are, you know, doorstops to people who suck or whatever. Um I would read him again, but at the same time my one star review actually also goes into a little bit like what you were talking about. So John Avery as a one star review of The Floating Opera on Goodreads says I couldn't even finish it. This is And this is an easy read. I thought this book was incredibly boring, naive in its depictions of sexual relationships and the parts meant to be funny, barely elicited a smirk. Maybe had I picked this up when I was younger. Dot, <laughs> dot, dot. So he basically saying like the same thing as you, like when you're in your mid twenties, this was like a mind blowing, like, yeah, I don't care. And I don't have to care, you know, that kind of thing. But, and maybe it's true. Maybe I think he wrote this when he was like, from his twenties or like, I think he was like in his twenties or something like that when he wrote this. So it's kind of one of those like fuck the world books. And then, you know, as you get older, you're like, okay, but you know, what's it, what's it really, you know, down to, but the other side of the coin read this in one week, 252 pages. Couldn't have been that bad.
1: Yeah. And that's the thing I kind of want to point out here is that, yes, you know, this is, a debut too. So you kind of got to, I kind of look at it the same way I look at, uh, like the neon Bible or something, you know, it's not all there and it's not perfect, but it's, it was my introduction to, to Barth. Mm -hmm. And then he gets a lot wilder from there. Right. (laughs) Yeah. And so I guess I'll jump right into, to my thing here. Um, this, Will be a weird one because I I couldn't I didn't finish the book that I've actually been reading last week and a half or so. Mm-hmm. So I did like you know last minute audible I just checked on the shelf or something. Uh and just again chance struck here. Gone uh, Barth. Yeah. The f- Wheel of Fortuna or whatever. Um, <laughs> this this one's gonna be more anecdote than actual review. So we'll kind of see how it goes. Um I did Read some of it again, just as a refresher. Mm. But again, this—I mean, I read this was probably five years ago or something, <laughs> you know, <laughs> after. But uh, a typical fashion, I'm going to start with a question. Uh, <laughs> mm. How? Because I, because I have like a, uh, like I said, anecdote. A big digression here. How experimental do you think fiction can get? Like, what do you think are the limits? what are the most interesting stylistic choices you've heard of, mm-hmm. and more so like, what can you realistically do within the medium of paper and ink to make something new?
0: Hmm. Well, I used to think that the limit, I really did used to think that the limit was reached and then backed off of from when, um,
1: who wrote The Third Policeman? I'm having a brain. <laughs> it's uh, that guy who you uh, Fran O'Brien.
0: Yeah, Flann O'Brien. I kind of used to think that that was the limit because when you were like researching those type of books, it was like, you know, there's like this Joyce guy. Everyone knows Joyce. Don't read Finnegan's Way because you won't understand. You know, maybe Ulysses, but still hard to understand. And then there was like this Flann O'Brien. And I remember reading At Swim Two Birds and... I just wasn't ready for it. Like I wasn't mature enough for it or whatever, or, and I really want to read the third policeman ever since you talked about it. Cause it seems incredible. But the, that was like, kind. I think the limit is like almost personal where, or where you are in your like reading development because it was like that at one point was like, no, that's the limit. Like I'm going to just stop reading cause I have no idea and I don't want to know kind of thing. Yeah. Um, but I think it's an interesting question just because I'll like kind of translate it into what I think of. Like I've heard a quote and I don't even know if this quote is true. You never know what the internet until you look it up. But I think someone like I think Kubrick is attributed with saying that like if it can be thought and felt, it can be filmed. Like he was like this person who thought, you know, film is like an unbounded like thing that you can do it but people just haven't done it in X, Y, Z way yet or anything. And I feel that's like the same thing with like writing where it's basically like, there really is no limit, but it just has, it's like personal. I mean, take poetry and stuff like that. Like there's people out there reading like 500 pages of abstract, like absolutely psychotic poetry. And it's just like, I don't know. That's not like where I want to be led. So I've never gone down that path. Um, but I'm guessing you're saying that John Barth takes it pretty far,
1: far enough, but you still stayed in. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, but so when I talk about that, you know, what are the limits like when you're just have paper and ink or whatever, there's other stuff you can do like, uh, that maybe you're not thinking of right now, but think about, you know, we've mentioned house of leaves before by Mark, mm-hmm. Mark Danielewski, uh, from 2000. So what, what made that unique?
0: Yeah, I mean, Danielewski is, like, really interesting. I don't know if it's Daniel Lucy or Danielewski, but say, yeah. it he's interesting guy because – House of Leaves comes on, for me, House of Leaves is like the pinnacle and it comes on the market and people are like, wow, we're ready to be blown away by this guy's books like again and again. And House of Leaves does, he does the type of stuff, right, where it's like there's just one word on the page in the upper left hand corner or one of the pages is in a spiral and you have to keep like spiraling the book around and stuff like that. But then eventually I think... Following his work, it was like House of Leaves was like amazing because it had really amazing writing and was like kind of scary and creepy and stuff. But then as I followed his work more and more and just kind of wanted to be involved in his stuff. Um, actually, side note, I once won a contest to interview him over like, <laughs> over Skype. And I yeah. and that, that did happen. Um but I would follow his work more and more and I kind of fell off just because I was like at, at a certain point they like weren't even like novels anymore. It was like it would come out. He would come out with a 300 page book or a 500 page book and I would be like, yeah, I'm ready. But there was nothing to sink your teeth into because it was like page after page of like this one's upside down. <laughs> and you, you know, you read back at you read backwards and forwards like, you know, whatever. And I was like, meh, you know, like eventually it, it does break.
1: Yeah, so that's that's the that's the thing I want to talk about. Like, wh- where's the line between innovation and you know gimmick? Yeah. Because, like, what you just described sounds like uh, almost almost like what's uh, ASCII art, like ASCII, like the typeface, the art. Yeah. You know, like the most the most famous one I can think of is from The Office when like uh, Pam makes like Dwight's face out of fonts, <laughs> and stuff, uh-huh. like a full page thing. That's as, that's as, ASCII art, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but anyways, yeah, so House of Leaves kind of does that. And then when I was looking back into like experimental fiction or times when people were kind of breaking the mold for what the novel was or that sort of thing, one one that came up a lot was uh, Lawrence Stern and uh, the, the Life and Opinions of Trist- Tristram Shandy yeah i've heard of that popular one uh f- it's from 1759 so it's very old and basically it kind of made a mockery of of narrative and mm-hmm. like it did things like when there was like a character who died and they just he just had a page that was all black like the whole within the margins was just filled with ink to like mourn the death of the character and mm-hmm. kind of random stuff like that and then at there was another famous part where he he has like a diagram of like, this is how the storyline has meandered so far. It's just like a squiggly line. Like it went from here to here to here, like (laughs) um, squiggling around to get to the end. Um, And yeah, like we mentioned, Ulysses is noted on there for like doing the stream of consciousness stuff and uh, being incomprehensible at times. (laughs) Uh, And then there's also, you know, the fact, the fact that um, you could have something with like the fact that,
0: Oh, uh,
1: God. The, fact, the, fact that, <laughs> the fact that the fact that oh my God. the fact that the fact that that's one what? two that broke um, that broke it yeah and then uh, a couple that I covered recently the last samurai kind of has a unique narration and like structure mm-hmm. and yeah maybe, you covered in the goon squad how it like, yeah. goes into a powerpoint yep yep that was my next one on the on the list here um, I want you to look up something another one another version of typographic experimentation if you could look up now the raw shark texts raw shark texts and just i guess go to images or, or whatever it's from, book from 2000 by stephen hall yep yeah it's all just pictures of sharks in ascii art yeah yeah <laughs> but uh, you're supposed to read them as well you know it's <laughs> the same sort of thing as like house of leaves but they have one where like as you keep turning the pages the shark gets closer to you it's like a shark attack thing Ooh. i have no idea what it's about but <laughs> Almost like a flip flip book kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But yeah, some of this is gimmick, some of it's innovation. Um, I find that the experimental tag usually means that a book is very divisive. It's either loved or hated, not really an in-between. right. Mm-hmm. So uh, check check this one out and this is a a very short, short story, but it's very long. Uh, and it comes from the book that I revisited this week. I'm going to send you a picture right now. Okay. Um, on WhatsApp. Uh, and this, this short story is called frame tale. And so you, you go to the page of the book and there's a dotted line on the right side. Mm-hmm. And on one side, on one page, it says, uh, or it just says cut on the dotted line, mm-hmm. it says, twist once and fasten the ends together. Hmm. And so those are instructions there, that by following them, if you choose to actually cut this strip out of your book and you know mutilate one of your novels like a I've never uh, never done before, uh, you create like a Möbius strip, a Möbius loop uh, with no beginning and no end. Yeah. So
0: basically, you did. You have to cut it out of the book yourself. Yeah, I cut it out. Jeez. <laughs>
1: Like I said, wow. uh, mutilated it. And um, so what you end up with is a Mobius strip that reads, once upon a time, there was a story that began. Once upon a time, there was a story that began and so on mm-hmm. and so on, you know. And I was going to make the stupid joke uh, in the vein So of- Garth made this? Yes. This is one little piece of a short story collection. Jesus. I was going to say that this was the book that I read that I hadn't, <laughs> I hadn't finished yet. Uh, but, <laughs> yeah, you can't finish it. Yeah. Uh, but what I really read is uh, one section, uh, one short story from the short story collection, Lost in the Funhouse by John Barth. Hmm. And so I've wanted to cover Barth for a while. Kind of pissed that I wasn't able to start off with one of his long novels, like you mentioned before. Sotweed Factor, I tried to track down for years. You know, I, I like to find used books. Naturally or whatever. I've been looking for that one. It's in my mental list for a long time. Uh, Hmm. I found it last fall, I think. So I haven't gotten to it yet. It's like Um, 800 pages, right? It's huge, yeah. Uh, Hopefully it doesn't have any weird bullshit that you have to cut out of the book. (laughs) I have read Giles Goatboy, which uh, is maybe too difficult to cover here. (laughs) But (laughs) it may be something I can do someday if I muster strength for it. He's definitely a challenging author, or, you know, he becomes a challenging author. I have <laughs> my note here before I knew what you were doing. Uh, I have only been able to finish his earlier, less experimental novels, The Floating Opera* and the End of the Road. Mm-hmm. So you didn't finish Giles' Goat Boy? I did. Oh, sorry. Um, I don't know why I contradicted myself there. <laughs> <laughs> so you've read those three, but Goat, did you
0: find that Goat Boy was like less than or... Did he evolve uh, and become
1: better? He he became better. Mm, okay. I like I liked the floating opera a lot, like I said, when I was younger. And I haven't revisited it, but what I've read of his past that have surpassed it. Except for the end of the road. Floating opera is better than the end of the road. I'll say that. Um but yeah, I'm gonna introduce Barth pretending that you didn't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, Give it a go. <laughs> The most apparent thing about him to me is that he very much reps his home state. You know, he's a big Maryland guy.
0: Yeah, he is, which is
1: like rare. (laughs)
0: Yeah.
1: So I was going to ask you what's your word association with Maryland? Like, what do you think of when you think of Maryland?
0: I don't even have any idea i feel like i've driven through it <laughs> hey, baltimore. Um, baltimore associations yeah i've been to baltimore yeah i've uh, never mind i forgot baltimore I was in maryland <laughs> yeah baltimore is cool crabs crabs yep, good good crabs old, um
1: old is bay. old bay seasoning is
0: um what should we call it there that like they have like one of those like villages that's old where is that it's like no. <laughs> you know village. like those places that you go when you're a kid and it's like, like Surbridge, a, Surbridge village, Surbridge village that's in connecticut but there's uh, another one in maryland yeah
1: i don't know i'm sure there's a bunch of them yeah butt that you get dragged to as a uh, i guess basically i just
0: want crabs yeah. at that point i they, their crabs are fantastic
1: <laughs> my list had uh edgar Allan poe If you want that's a literary okay. connection to maryland uh old bay seasoning and uh the baltimore ravens the nfl team Mm -hmm. which put me on another tangent like i said this book report is hardly about the book it's more about all this other stuff (laughs) that it made me think about uh the ravens they're a literature named sports team
0: yeah i didn't know that but that's yeah that's crazy because because of poe yeah See what's weird is that I feel like certain names lend themselves to like I almost like didn't associate Edgar Allen I didn't even know about the Maryland connection because when I hear like Edgar Allan Poe I think of like somebody like in a
1: you know in a like an old building in Europe <laughs> no uh, he was born in Boston died in Maryland spent most of his time in, in Maryland interesting. Um, but yeah, I don't think there's any other literature related sports teams. I think that's the only one that Probably, I can.
0: Think of. That's the only one
1: I can think of. I mean, yeah. as much as I don't know anything about sports. <laughs> I'll I'll try and think of that and come back to it some future episode. It'll it'll uh yeah, come back to me. But I think it's kind of cool when authors don't try to be a hundred percent universal, whatever, and place all their damn all their stories in New York City, <laughs> like Definitely. a lot of people do. <laughs> But, you know, you got to write what you know. So uh, Lost in the Funhouse. It's a collection of 14 short stories. And, you know, I just showed you one of them. So, like, (laughs) 13 short stories and and that thing. Mm -hmm. That's the only one in that book that's like that. It's not. That's the only thing that you cut would That, for me, definitely goes past the limit. Like, like, yeah, cut this out and
0: make it into a Mobius strip. And it's like, no, dude.
1: That's the gimmick. And there's another part of it where, like, you're meant to record like record yourself i think and listen to yourself reading it or something like that really very very much like strange uh experimentation with the medium uh so yeah lost in the funhouse it's from the collections from 1968 so you know if you want to like align it with what else was going on in postmodern world uh, i think that essay that you talked about what is it? The liter- literature of exhaustion or something like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, but that that was like in that mid-60s era too, like I think, or early 60s. Um, but kind of like, you know, sets off the postmodern movement and all that. Um, but <laughs> I'm just full of anecdotes today. Uh, I went to grad school at Lehigh University in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. There was a towny bar there called the Fun House, and I want you to look that up right now. Just Fun House, Bethlehem, Pennsylvania.
0: Fun House. <laughs> yeah, the front, of, the front yeah.
1: of this place. Okay. Yep. So it has this bright tarp sign out front that's like really Fun House. So yeah, yeah. Meet fun pretty. people. <laughs> it says where fun people meet and party. Mm-hmm. And it just, I, it just, I couldn't help but laugh every time I saw it. Um, And their claim to fame, apparently, was that they were featured in, like, Stuff or Maxim magazine in, like, 2002. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So, yeah, this just makes me think of that. But back to the book. The title story, Lost in the Funhouse, it's really just a mundane story about a boy named Ambrose. Uh, And I'm not sure if that was Ambrose. But it's a boy named Ambrose. And another, another one of the stories here is about how he got his name. Um, So I need to kind of double check if it's from Bierce or not. But it's Ambrose and his family taking a trip to the Maryland like pier. Um, But you know, in a really er early example of metafiction, like you said before, like you were talking about the floating opera and how he would kind of talk to the talk to the reader and a little bit. He kind of goes full full into that, like dives right into it so this short story is just full of like narration that comments on the story's form and all the literary devices that is being used as it progresses it's like it was written by like abed from community (laughs) (laughs) he'll just stop certain parts mid-sentence and tell you like what that part was supposed to be accomplishing
0: yeah by the way
1: yeah and it definitely toes the line between clever and maybe too clever for its own good And that's why the reviews for this are are super divisive. Like Mm -hmm. I saw someone on Goodreads say, um, when he's on, he's almost unbeatable. And when he's not on, he's almost unbearable. I could maybe see the beginnings of
0: that even in the Floating Opera. Because there's like parts where it's like, whoa, that was cool. Or like like surprising, blah, blah, blah. And then there's other parts where you're like, dude.
1: (laughs) (laughs) And that's what you get when you dive into his longer... Uh, novels too. So, the, like again, this is uh, just short, short, short stories here. Um, but yeah, and I guess my only experience is with with Giles. But I will confirm that <laughs> with it once I read Sawweed Factor. Uh, but yeah, it's got some interesting stuff going on, and it, you know, you have to give it credit for also when it comes out, like when this was released, doing what it's doing. I'll just read like a quick example. Um, it's just like talking about them driving in the car on the way there. Mm-hmm. and It's like, the function of the beginning of a story is to introduce the principal characters, establish their initial relationships, set the scene for the main action, expose the background of the situation if necessary, plant motifs and foreshadowings where appropriate, and initiate the first complication or whatever of the rising action. Actually, if one imagines a story called The Fun House or Lost in the Fun House, the details of the drive to Ocean City don't seem especially relevant. The beginning should recount the events between Ambrose's first sight of the Fun House early in the afternoon and his entering it with Magda and Peter in the evening. The middle would narrate all relevant events from the time he goes in to the time he loses his way. Middles have the double and contradictory function of delaying the climax while at the same time preparing the reader for it and fetching him to it. Then the ending would tell what Ambrose does while he's lost, how he finally finds his way out, and what everybody makes of the experience. So far, there's been no real dialogue, very little sensory detail, and nothing in the way of a theme. And a (laughs) long time has gone by already without anything happening. It makes a person wonder. We haven't even reached Ocean Ocean City yet. We will never get out of the funhouse. And that's like five or six pages in. So he's kind of just poking fun at how he went into all this detail and hasn't really started the story yet. Right. Or failed at the traditional beginning. Um, but basically what happens is the story, not much, you know. <laughs> they go to the Maryland pier, it's about this the this boy Ambrose, he's with his, I think his brother and his mom and dad, and then the like the the girl from down the street who he's, you know, has a crush on whatever. And he's like kind of reconciling that those feelings and his fear of doing stuff like the funhouse. you know, it's kind of scary or, or whatever. And, um, but then there's a really cool moment where he, you know, gets lost and he, he sees this crack in the wall and he takes a look through and sees like the person operating all this stuff. And it's just, you know, this old man who like bears a resemblance to his like grandfather. And it's kind of like a look behind the curtain. And when he kind of gets out of, when he kind of uh, finally gets unlost or whatever word you're supposed to, what word means (laughs) unlost? unlost. (laughs) not found because like you find your way out of it, but whatever Uh, (laughs) he kind of like sees everything that just happened as like almost a weird non, like something that didn't really happen. It was just like he kind of um, passed out or whatever and just like woke up outside.
0: Hmm. Um,
1: So I don't know. It's a very, very cool story. And yeah. Did that feel cheap? Was it like sort of like, like, you know, when a show ends with like, it was a dream. No, I liked the way, uh, if I could find really quick, just how it ends. um, (laughs) Some more, more cynical moments uh, of him kind of talking about how he's ready to kind of, um, he even foresaw wincing at his dreadful self-knowledge that he would repeat. Oh, wait, wait, wait. uh, (laughs) stepping from the treacherous passage passage at last into the mirror maze. He saw once again, more clearly than ever, how readily he deceived himself into supposing he was a person. He even foresaw, wincing at his dreadful self-knowledge, that he would repeat the deception at ever rarer intervals, all his wretched life, so fearful were the alternatives. Fame, madness, suicide, perhaps all three. It's not believable that so young a boy could articulate that reflection, and in fiction, the merely true must always yield to the plausible. Moreover, the symbolism is in places heavy-footed yet Ambrose understood as few adults do that the famous loneliness of the great was no popular myth, but a general truth. Furthermore, that it was as much cause as effect. Hmm. So again, with the cynicism, but I just, this is a example of him kind of finding his voice and then um, kind of expands on that. What I, the book of his that I really want to read that again, I just haven't been able to find um, because, yeah, have you ever come across any of this stuff in bookstores or anything?
0: No, that's why That's why it was like this thing where it was like, obviously I had forgotten that you sent this, physically sent yeah. me this book, and then it was on my bookshelf, and I'm like, what the hell is this even? Like, why do I
1: have this? <laughs> but, um, yeah, the one that I want to read that I think he won an award for, and maybe I don't know, remember if it was the National Book Award, or he won one of those awards in 1973 for um, Chimera. Mm -hmm. And so that was a year before, I think it was the National Book Award or the Nobel. I don't remember, but um, that's the one I really want to read at some point. So anyways, uh, it's interesting to see the progression. And I guess now I want to read my one-star review from Brett.
0: (laughs) Ooh, Brett.
1: I absolutely hated this book. Apparently it is partially responsible for the birth of postmodern fiction, but that does not, in my opinion, make it as good as that, which it influenced. I don't care for the Beatles much either, but I love Oasis. Go figure. (laughs) And like interesting Interesting (laughs) comparison, that argument just doesn't hit it for me. If you use an example that I don't care so much about.
0: Right. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's dangerous to do that.
1: Yeah. Um, but yeah, personally, I don't, re- I don't think the short story collection is like incredible, but it is interesting, you know, mm-hmm. and it did get me into Barth's other stuff, which I do think is amazing. Right. It's a stepping stone.
0: Step, why, but that's interesting though, because like, why is everything that Barth does a stepping stone?
1: <laughs> well, I don't know yet. Cause I haven't read Camaro. I need to see what that does to me. Yeah.
0: Or Sotweed Factor is like, apparently this, like, you know, okay, here's the real guy, you know?
1: I don't know. I hope to find out one day. Uh, So this is, again, maybe on episode 100, we'll both be like, so I read Sotweed Factor. (laughs) I I need the hyperbaric, hyperbolic time chamber. Right. From Dragon Ball Z to just go in so I can read a book that large in a week. Exactly yeah Uh, so this is where we typically say thanks for listening and all that but we want to do like five seconds of wrapping up before then (laughs) what did you learn this week what did you learn
0: what did i learn i learned that john barth is still trying to reach his peak i think maybe we're being maybe i'm really unfair in saying that considering that we haven't read his penultimate work um, I learned that Garfield is over licensed
1: <laughs> that's what I learned nice uh I learned that there's a secret Yelp not i said Yelp no wrong oh. wrong app entirely a uh, secret skype interview of you and and Mark Danieluski. that that you would have it. it. Is I actually,
0: I think what happened is it was like made by his publishers. It was like a PR thing for like a book that hadn't come out yet. And everyone was really hyped on it. I won this contest by submitting these questions. And I think I don't, re- I think I might have it on a hard drive somewhere because me being the, um excited film student that i was at the time or just post-grad that i was at the time i did do like a screen recording of it yeah i don't know where it is but it definitely doesn't exist like in the official form of like oh here's the link to like the (laughs) thing because it was very temporary um but yeah i could try to track that down that would be interesting to upload i wonder if anyone come after me and be like take that down
1: no let's get that audio for a
0: uh Bonus episode, yeah. Bonus episode, <laughs> me interviewing Daniel Levski. Yeah, if I can get the, if I can get it, I, it might only be in like little chunks or something because I don't know if the, if the screen record was full. But I'll try to dive into some hard drives and see if I can find it.
1: Cool. All right, everyone. Uh, thanks for listening. This has been another episode of Shitty Book Reports. You can find us every every week, not every Sunday, on <laughs> Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, iTunes, Instagram, and Twitter at SBR the podcast. And you can also email us at sprthepodcast at gmail dot com. Uh, give us your comments, suggestions, uh, corrections, or whatever you're feeling,
0: so, or yeah, whatever can... you learned.
1: Yeah.